And we're looking this morning, uh, the sermon this morning will be from Judges 17 and 18. I won't read out both chapters, uh, but we'll read out uh, some of them and then we'll refer to uh, both those chapters. Uh, Judges chapter 17. As we come now to God's word, let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, do thank you for your word. And as we come now to look at the Bible together, we pray, Lord, that you would give us, uh, by your spirit, the openness we need to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that even in these uh, dark chapters at the end of the book of Judges, you appoint us to the contrasting light of the good news. And we pray, Lord, that uh, for those who are familiar with the truth of God and follow you, it would build them up. And for those who are new to Christianity, or biblical Christianity at least, uh, this will come as a refreshing uh, word from the living God, from you, Lord, uh, to them too. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, uh, the book of Judges, chapter 17, and I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 of that chapter 17, and we'll cover some of 18 as well. Let's hear God's word. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite 
as priest. Then chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. And then picking up the story at verse 27 of chapter 18, 27. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him. And they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan. And the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved images that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And then just the first part of verse 1 of chapter 19. In those days when there was no king in Israel. I've always liked comics, uh, cartoons, um, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, The Incredible Hulk, I was always teased when I was growing up as a young person by my family because I have a slight lisp on the L, so I can never say Hulk right. Um, but I always liked comics and cartoons. Somewhat amused me when they became popular again that they started to be called, instead of comics and cartoons, graphic novels. So there you go. Uh, one cartoon I've enjoyed uh, over the years is uh, called The Far Side written by Gary Larson. It's just a great sense of humor he has in it. And one particular cartoon of Gary Larson's uh, reminds me of the sort of thing we're dealing with in this, this story here, this passage here. He has a picture of a field, I, I suppose somewhere in Ohio or something like that. And in this field, there is a group of, there are a group of cows but instead of the cows being on four legs, they're standing on two legs. And they're talking to each other. And one of the cows is leaning on the fence. There's a road that goes past the field. And he's leaning on the fence and he's keeping watch out, look out to see when a human will come past in a car. And then you see the next uh, the next cartoon, the next image in uh, this particular cartoon strip. And the cow says, as he's looking out, car, humans. And all the cows in the next image, as the car goes by, they're now on four legs. And when the humans are gone, of course, the idea is they go back to standing on two legs talking to each other. The idea being, given that you never can watch cows when you're not actually watching them, how do you know what's happening when you're not there? Of course, we know that 
cows don't talk. But it, it, it illustrates the sort of thing we're dealing with here because of the preponderance of silly ideas, wrong ideas, wrong-headed ideology, conspiracy theories of one kind or another. Is it a conspiracy theory saying that cows always walk on four legs? And to illustrate that kind of in our own day is a little tricky because one person's conspiracy theory is another person's sophisticated contrary opinion. But to take an example of which I suppose we all will agree, it's fascinating to observe in the nether reaches of the internet these days a re-emergence of the flat earth society. We have known for a long time the world is a globe. No, when the sailors came on the ship with Columbus all those hundreds of years ago, they did not fear falling off the edge of the world. They knew the world was a globe hundreds of years ago. If you have any doubt on this matter, just watch a ship as it disappears over the horizon. The last thing you will see as it goes over the horizon are its masts because it goes over the curve of the earth. All the satellites that are up there that power our GPS or pictures from outer space. But there are other more, perhaps less silly ideas that are egregious as well as humorous that are out there today. Some of them have even racist overturns. One particular group of people all like this. It amuses me when someone hears my accent. They sometimes come up to me afterwards and say, I knew as soon as I heard your English accent, you must be smart. Not all English people are clever. Let me assure you of that. Here we have in this passage the lack of godly authority leading to increasingly unusual, odd, dysfunctional ideas that lead to increasingly odd, dysfunctional behavior. The great Catholic apologist G.K. Chesterton put it like this, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in everything. And that's what we're experiencing today. And that's what they're experiencing then. And here there are three particular everythings that then point us to the lights at the end of the tunnel of darkness. They are uh, money, power, and self. First of all, money is the beginning of the, the, of. Chapter 17, what happens when people think everything is about money? The answer is, when people think everything is about money, it undermines and destroys faith, which, of course, is what was happening to Micah and the Levite in chapter 17. Do you notice how it began with uh, this issue of money, that, that 1,100 pieces of silver that, that the uh, mother had uh, lost and which she uttered a curse, she swore about it? Even to her son, spoke it in my ears. 
She was effing and, and, and bliming about the money that she'd lost. And the son admits, I suppose, confesses that he took it and gives it back to her mother. And she says, you, uh, pronounces a kind of benediction. Blessed be my son by the Lord. It sounds all very pious. But note what she does to the money. She turns the money into a carved image, verse 3, in a metal image. She literally makes an idol of money. But what I think is humorous about it, if you notice, verse 4, is though she makes literally an idol of money, she doesn't use all the money. She only uses 200 pieces of silver. The rest she keeps for herself. Money. I've been reading a Persian poet by the name of Rumi. I came across a, uh, a, a, a man from a Persian background who'd been converted and become a Christian. And he encouraged me to read this Persian poet to find out a bit more about Persian culture, ancient Persian culture. And so I've been reading this, 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 this famous Persian poet called Rumi. And he has a line in it that, that brings out brilliantly the issue of money. He says this, Unchain yourself, my son. Escape its hold. How long will you remain a slave of gold? Oh, it's slavery. Service. Worship of gold. Or in this case, literally silver. It can do so much damage, can't it? I think we could say that they had the first prosperity gospel priest. You see verse 13. Now I've got a Levite, the Lord will prosper me. This issue of money had tunneled out real biblical faith. It had captivated their hearts and their minds. As they built an idol for money. To money. Out of money. can be dangerous money in church life. That's why we have all sorts of accountability systems in place here at the church. Deacons and treasurer and all the rest. Uh, but it's not just in church life, in our individual lives. Money and its worship will tunnel out real faith. In our political life, follow the money. That's the real story. As we as a culture build our idols to money, not little statues of silver, but huge edifices to this brand Fortune 100 company or another one. I spent some time in living in developing countries outside of America and Europe where the financial checks and balances are less well in place. And living in those countries, I was just amazed 
at the amount of bribery. And it's seeping into our culture, isn't it? Follow the money. It's a worship of money. When, when we believe everything is about money, it destroys our faith. What's the answer to it? Well, of course, the answer is the freedom that comes from generosity. We're no longer worshipping money. We have a higher value than our pieces of silver. Well, the second of these idols here in this passage is, uh, is not money, but now second, power. And when we believe everything is about power, money destroys faith, power destroys hope. When everything is about power, we just become cynical about the future and cynical about what's really going on. Everything is a power game. And that, of course, is what was going on with the, these, uh, these day nights who, who, who the, the story that if we didn't read out all in chapter 18, but if you look down with me at that chapter 18, you'll see the sort of thing that they were doing. They, they wanted an inheritance to dwell in, which looked like at some level they were fulfilling the promise of the Old Testament, but they went about it entirely the wrong way. It's just power for them now. You, you, you pick this up with the, the 600 men of the tribe of Dan, verse 11, with their weapons of war. They've, they've come across Micah and his his statue and his idols and his money, and they, they just take away all that from him. Um, and the, the, the verse 16, the 600 men of the day nights, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by at the entrance of the gate, the 600 men armed with weapons of war. In other words... You think uh, money's going to control it. Well, look, I've got the power. I have the bigger army. They just come in and take it. Verse 18, when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and priest. We've got the power. Your previous master might have the money, but we have the power. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. I bet he did. Power. And when we think everything is about power, it just makes life entirely... Cynical. The great uh, king Charlemagne, literally Charles the Great, it is said, and it may be a myth, I did some research about it some years ago to try and figure out whether there was real historical veracity or, or, or not to it, and it really isn't clear. It could be a myth, but if it is a myth, it still illustrates the point. Charles, uh, the great Charlemagne, after he died, it is said, that uh, they went to his grave to move his bones, sort of thing they were wont to do in those days, and they went into the grave and they discovered his skeletal remains sitting on a throne with a Bible open in front of him with his bony finger pointed at the text. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? 
See, if we think everything's about power, one day we all have to come face to face with the ultimate reality check, death. And however much power we have, however big our army is, however impressive our list of contacts may be, one day, one day we'll have that ultimate reality check. But our our society today does think everything is about power, pretty much. That's the doctrine of postmodernism that has infiltrated every level of of, of our culture, our society, even some churches today, which is saying because there's no truth, therefore everything is about power. Everything is a power game. It leads to ultimate cynicism, and it is so demonstrably dangerous. If you have any doubts about that, a good resource to read is of the former communist literary genius Alexander Solzhenitsyn and he's got various things he wrote but particularly his Gulag Archipelago and in one place he describes how the the victims of the power game of the criminal justice system that was no longer just in any way whatsoever were taken into a room before they were convicted and he, he describes it like this on the walls of the waiting rooms had been scratched with nails and scrawled in pencil the following. I got execution. Or I got 25. 25 being 25 years. I got a tenor, meaning 10 years. He comments, they didn't clean off those graffiti. They served an educational purpose. Be scared. Bow down. Don't think you can change anything by your behavior. Even if you speak in your defense with the eloquence of Demosthenes, it would not help you in the slightest. Why? It's all about power, and we have the power. Destroys hope if it's all about power. The day nights went to this peaceful and unsuspecting people and just took over because they could. Well, we come then to the third of these, these idols, the dark tunnel that will lead us to the light. Uh, not just money, not just power, but then third, self. And of course, that is the echoing message of the book of Judges over and over again that now with its thematic statement that recurs with increasing frequency towards the end, uh, the the assertion of the self, and when everything is about self, it destroys love. And that repeated theme, uh, you you can see, for instance, in chapter 17, verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel, so there was no godly authority, and therefore, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He did whatever he wanted to do. It's all about the self, what I want. And you see the same thing echoed in uh, verse 1 of chapter 18. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And then again in um, chapter 19, verse 1, those days, there was no king uh, in, in Israel. When we reject God's authority... 
another authority must be put in its place. And the other authority, in the end, is the authority of self. And that, of course, is what we're seeing all around us. Not just the the individualistic self, but what one social commentator called the big me, the self of my group, the Danites, and their assertion of self, their group. It was uh, Andy Warhol who um, one time remarked, it was one of his phrases he liked to use, that he would say that in the future, everyone will be famous for five minutes, which with our social media and social influences and all that may well have almost become true. And look what it is doing to people. How it is destroying communities loving interaction, kindness. If it's just about you, then who cares for everyone else? Why would you? You're just going to do whatever you think is right. That horrible phrase that I sometimes hear echoing around, do as thou wilt is the first law. Well, it's the lie of hell, and it leads to hell. And fame, which in some ways can feel like it's the ultimate big me, if you listen to the people who have become really famous, they realize it's not the answer. Uh, Even great actors like Harrison Ford will talk at length about how he loves being an actor but wishes he could be an actor without all the downsides of fame because he now cannot have any anonymity at all. Or Matthew Perry, the friend star who died fairly recently, at one point says that those who've become famous realize that fame will not save. Interesting, isn't it? The eye, however big it gets, will not save. It's not the answer. This is the meism of the title. Our preponderant idea today is not so much theism or even relativism, lots of different doctrines and thoughts, so that's all a part of it, the relativistic idea. But behind all that is what I call me-ism, the self. What I feel is right must be right. Well, it is a dark tunnel. Money, when everything's about money, when we stop believing in God, we don't believe in nothing, we believe in everything. G.K. Chesterton, when everything is about money, then it, it destroys faith. When everything is about power, then it destroys hope. It's all cynicism. There's no higher values of beauty and love and truth. It's all just a power game, and so everything is cynical. When everything is about self, Of course, it leads to the fragmentation of families and relationships, and no one is willing to sacrifice themselves for a higher good. And so it destroys love. And the answer? Well, the answer, of course, is the very reverse. In the book of Judges, the king that the the author of Judges is in tending us to be prepared for is in the Old Testament, the Old Testament King David, God's good king. 
But as we read Judges in the context of the whole Bible, we know that that king is ultimately Jesus. His kingdom. God's service is perfect freedom. You want freedom? It's not from money or power or self. It's from having Jesus as your king. That's the truth that will set you free. And so as we come out of the dark tunnel, begin to look at the light, we're reminded of how Jesus dealt with his temptations to money and power and self. And that famous moment when he was tempted by the devil and he resisted that temptation in order to give his life to to rescue others. And he resisted it using the word which is also another fascinating observation. There was no king, and so everyone did what they saw fit, and what you find is the word is silent. As we reassert God's word into our churches and culture, we therefore put Jesus as our king. We discover truth and beauty and love and the freedom that comes from serving Jesus. Jesus shows us how with his use of the word. But he also, not only is the method, he's the means too. He lived the perfect life, the life that none of us have lived. He took the punishment that we all deserved. And if we have him as our king, we will be forgiven and can start again. Walk out of the dark into the light. Away from money and power and self. And towards faith. And hope and love. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that as a church we would always have our Bibles opened at in our small groups, adult communities, in our worship gatherings. We do wish to bow before you, Lord Jesus, as our King, and follow your lead. We pray, therefore, Lord, that we would be people of faith and hope and love, that in the dark world around us, Lord, as we read these chapters towards the end of Judges, it seems like such a such an obvious diagnosis of what's wrong with the world today and the darkness we see around. We're no longer confused as to why. When there is no king, everyone does what they see fit, power, money, self. What else is there? But we pray, Lord, that we might be light in this dark world as a church and as individuals, We pray you'd help us with that even today as we talk to friends and church family on the way out, that we would offer a word of encouragement and support.
We pray for it, Lord, in our families as we seek to follow you and put you first. Help us not to assert what we want, but what you want. We pray for it at work as well, that we might be examples of a Christ-like love and hope and faith. We pray, Lord, for those who don't yet know you this morning, that they would, by your Spirit, come out of the dark and into the light. Help us, Lord, uh, in all these ways, we, and, and according to your will, more. And we pray these things for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.